Hi, this is Alice. Perhaps the most searing photograph so far from the war in Ukraine is of a mother and her two children lying dead in the street, covered by blood. They were killed by Russian mortar fire, as was a man who was trying to help them escape to safety, moments before the photo was taken. Lindsay Adario is the photographer who took the picture. She was the featured guest on our podcast four years ago. Her heartbreaking photo in Ukraine appeared on the front page of the New York Times and spread across the world. The father of the family learned about the death of his wife and children when he saw the image on Twitter. Here's what Lindsay Adario told CBS News about taking the photo. I mean, I'm a mother and, you know, I, when I'm working, I try to stay very focused. I try to keep sort of the camera to my eye so I don't think too much. But of course, it was very emotional. First of all, I had just been sprayed with gravel from a mortar round that could have killed us very easily. So I was shaken up and I, when we were told that we could run across the street by our security advisor, I ran and I saw Uh, this family splayed out and I saw these little moon boots and puffy coat and and I and I just thought of my own children of course and I and I thought you know it's disrespectful to take a photo but I have to take a photo this is a war crime I think it's really important that people around the world see these images. And I, you know, it's really brave of the New York Times to put that image on the front page. It's a difficult image, but it is a historically important image. Historically important, she explained, because it not only shows the tragic human toll of the war, but also documents that the Russians are targeting civilians. Given the incredible risks that journalists are taking to make sure the world sees what is happening in Ukraine, we thought we would invite you to take another listen to our episode on Lindsay Adario from 2018. Lindsay Adario is a photojournalist who's covered some of the most important news of our time. But in March of 2011, she became the news. And developing now some new information and disturbing information just into us, the New York Times now says that four of its journalists reporting on the conflict in Libya have gone missing. Editors at the New York Times say they were last in touch with their journalists. Adario and her colleagues were taken and held captive by Muammar Gaddafi's forces. They were severely beaten and told they'd be killed. Their driver was killed. But after six days in harrowing captivity, they were released. And Lindsay Adaria went right on, putting herself back in the way of extreme danger to capture images that open our eyes to the realities of the world, even when we'd sometimes rather look away. By her own count, she's taken pictures in over 70 countries. If there is a war or a humanitarian crisis, Lindsay Adario is there to bear witness, whether in Sudan, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Congo, Burma, Haiti, Syria. Her photos have earned her a MacArthur Fellowship and a Pulitzer Prize. What makes a good photo? I think a good photo is one that makes you stop in your tracks and and look at it twice or look at it for a long time. Um, It should have emotion or provoke emotion. It should for me, have a, a complex composition, something that sort of draws you in and you, you see more the longer you look at it. If you can, pull up some of Lindsay Adario's pictures on her website while you listen to this podcast. They will for sure stop you in your tracks, and you'll find them all the more stunning when you hear her describe what has driven her to risk life and limb in pursuit of a single frame. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adam A., this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which... A lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. 
decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Lindsay Adario's photos appear mostly in the New York Times, but also in National Geographic, Newsweek, and Time magazine. A couple of years ago, she published a memoir called It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. The first time she used a camera, she was about 12 years old. It was a used Nikon FG that her father had been given by a client. Her dad was a hairdresser. Adario told reporter Mary Jordan in this 2017 interview for the Academy of Achievement that she remembers being curious about that camera, picking it up, and feeling it in her hands. And he just gave it to me. And then I remember going out and I bought a book on how to photograph. And then I started just teaching myself. Uh, I would sit uh, on my roof in Connecticut and try and photograph the moon night after night. And I was, of course, too terrified to approach people. So I photographed flowers and cemeteries and, and then um, never studied photography. And when I went to University of Wisconsin, I studied international relations and Italian. But I did a junior year in Italy, in Bologna. And there I really started photographing. One of the first things I did when I went there was look for a dark room. And I photographed, and I think because um, I felt like anonymity could use, could, could sort of protect me from my shyness. So I was able to shoot on the streets. And it was the first time I really felt comfortable approaching people and, and kind of working on the streets. And then I went back to Wisconsin and graduated and moved to Argentina. Uh, I wanted to learn Spanish. And when I, um, when I moved to Argentina, I just went into a newspaper and basically asked for a job out of nowhere. I mean, I had no, no training, no experience, and, um, and that's really where I started photographing. And you got the job. I did not get the job. It was, um, I kept going in, and there were two men who worked in the photo department, and they just sort of chain-smoked cigarettes and, and kept shooing me away and saying, come back when you learn Spanish. And so I learned Spanish. I learned it very quickly because I spoke Italian. And I went back like six weeks later and said, you know, okay, I'm ready. And they said, you know, they rolled their eyes and said, okay. So they would give me fake assignments, basically like make up the address of a place and say, go here and take a picture of this house. And I always went and I came back. And finally they said, look, Madonna is filming Evita at the Casa Rosada in Buenos Aires. And if you can sneak on set and get a picture of Madonna, we'll give you a job. And so I was like, okay. And I had no idea how I would do that because I had my little Nikon FG camera with a 50, 50 millimeter lens and I had never photographed anything like that before. So I went to the set and there was a perimeter around the Casa Rosada. And fortunately there were New York bouncers, like kind of guys guarding the set. And I went up and I said, you know, hey, can I come in? And they were like, where's your press pass? And I was like, look, I don't have a press pass, but let me explain that my entire future depends on you. And if you let me in, I'm going to be famous. I promise one day I'm going to be famous. And the guy just looked at me and he was like, oh my God, you're so pathetic. And so I, uh, he let me in. He was like, okay, go. And so I went in and I was, I think I was 21. And I went in and um, I got on the press riser and of course didn't realize that I needed like a 600 millimeter lens to see anything. And so I stood up and there were all these TV cameras and, and, um, and proper photographers with big lenses. And I got up and I put my camera to my face and I couldn't see anything. You know, Madonna was like a million miles away. And so this guy just taps me on the shoulder and he was like, hey kid, just give me your camera back. And I was like, what's he talking about? Because I didn't even know that you could take my lens off and put it, a Nikon camera on the back of his lens. And so he did it for me. I basically just handed him my camera and he did it. And I looked in the viewfinder and there was Madonna and the Casa Rosada. And I kind of squealed with happiness and I got the picture and I got a job. Did they print that picture? They did. It's a horrible picture. Did you, did you get paid? <laughs> it's like you could only see like the balcony. You can't even see her. Yeah, I was getting $10 a picture. Did you really 
know you were going to be famous no. that early? No, of course I was just saying that. No. I knew that I was determined and I'm not, I still am sort of relentless about everything really. <laughs> Where does that determination come from? I don't know. I wish I knew and I wish I could sort of turn it off because it's, um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse because I, photography is, it's consumed my life. I mean, for most of my adult life, I didn't have any other life. So, yeah. So it's clear what kind of amazing success you can have with determination, but what do you miss out on? Um, so I'd say for the first probably until I was in my early 30s, I basically had no personal life. I would just, I spent most of my time in Iraq, Afghanistan, Darfur, Congo, um, Lebanon, Libya, just going from assignment to assignment and just never, I would go home. I had boyfriends, but I sort of would leave them at home and come back every three months and say, you know, hi and do my laundry and leave because there was no other way to do it. It's such a competitive job. Um, it's also, I was in a very different mind frame. I mean, when I would spend three months in Iraq, it was hard to come out and to sort of relate and try and have a life when all I wanted to do was go back. Were your parents saying prayers that you were going to make it out of all these dangerous zones? You know, they, um, I was raised by hairdressers, so they, uh, fortunately, when I started doing this work, the first time I went to Afghanistan, it was under the Taliban. Um, and it was in 2000, and I was, I think I was 26. And I remember calling my mother the night before I left for Afghanistan, and I said, uh, Mom, I'm going to Afghanistan tomorrow. And she was like, okay, honey, have fun. <laughs> because, of course, she had no idea what Afghanistan, this is before September 11th. So luckily, my parents uh, didn't really follow the news for the beginning when I first started covering war. And it wasn't really, and I never told them anything. I would just sort of go and work. And they, they didn't religiously read the New York Times. And, and it wasn't until um, probably around 2003, like around the time of Iraq, where they started really watching my pictures on the front page and in the New York Times. And they started getting worried. But I was always like, no, it's fine. It's totally safe. And then I got kidnapped in, like, right outside of Fallujah in April of 2004. And that was the first time uh, my father ever said to me, please come home. And they've never, ever said anything. And they've never said anything since then. Did you go home? Um, I did not go home right away <laughs> because I had a theory that I didn't, if I was going to be a photographer who covered war consistently, I didn't want my response to trauma to be to leave because I felt like that was a bad precedent to set. So I thought I should stay and try and work through it a little and then go. So that's what I did. Your parents, both of them are hairdressers. Yes, they're both hairdressers. Are you All three like of them? them in I now, life? my dad's gay and I have two, two dads now and mom, yeah. But is there anything that you learned from them or you remember them saying when you were young that yeah. you still think about today. Don't follow money, follow your heart, and you'll be successful. That's sort of all they told me and my sisters, or four sisters. Anyone else a photographer? We're all artists, but no one's a photographer. Yeah. I mean, I was very lucky because I grew up in a very eccentric household. I grew up um, literally raised by hairdressers and that whole community, so I, we had an open house. We sort of welcomed anyone and everyone, particularly people who were marginalized and people who were, um, who we had a lot of gay people, a lot of cross-dressers, a lot of, I would come home from school in, when I was seven years old and there'd be a man dressed as a woman playing show tunes at the piano. I mean, we never really knew what to expect, but that sort of, upbringing, uh, my parents taught us never to be judgmental, to accept everybody, um, to respect everybody. And I think that was fundamental, that sort of um, upbringing in that, uh, the, that set of values was fundamental for me now being a journalist because I walk in and out of so many people's lives and I try not to be judgmental. I try to bring that to my work. And clearly she succeeds, especially when she's documenting the lives of women, as she so often does. Women affected by sexual violence or war or poverty. In many of the places that Ariel travels, 
It's taboo for a woman to be photographed without the permission of her husband or her father. And so a large part of her work, the vast majority, she says, is gaining the trust of the people she portrays long before her camera ever comes out of the bag. Why do you think you were drawn to photograph conflict as opposed to the moon or landscapes? So I think I was never sort of attracted to conflict per se. It's not like I woke up and said, I want to be a war photographer. It was never like that. I was, for example, I was living in India um, in 2000 and I had a roommate at the time. Uh, I was renting a room from the Dow Jones bureau chief, Ed Lane. And he came back from a trip to Afghanistan. He said, you know, you're a woman and you care about women's issues. Why don't you go to Afghanistan and photograph women living under the Taliban? And I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, that's exactly what I should do. And it never dawned on me that I should be scared because I thought my intentions are pure. I'm literally going to speak to women about how they feel. And I got a visa, so I went with permission. And I, I went, and so it was more curiosity that was sort of, sort of the first time that I went into one of those situations, and it was fine. And then with after September 11th, it made sense to go back because I had all this experience in the region. And so I went to Pakistan right after September 11th, and then I ended up going in to cover the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar. And then by the time the Iraq war was on the horizon, I just thought, okay, well, it of course I'm going to go there because I've already been in Afghanistan and this seems to be a continuation of, of what's happening in my generation. And so I went. And so before I knew it, I sort of was going from conflict to conflict. But it wasn't really war. It was more the humanitarian issues, the human rights abuses, the sort of being there to bear witness to everything that's happening and providing a document for people back at home who didn't have access to these places. Is that how you define your work, kind of providing a document? Pretty much, like educating people, showing people what's happening, being there to record it to, you know, when we look back in 50 years, I have an archive of sort of the conflicts of our time after 9-11. You've done so many things and won so many prizes. <laughs> Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. What, what, what are you most proud of? Uh, I'm tortured. So I'm not really a proud person. I don't, I'm, I'm always conflicted about what I'm not doing. So I'm not, I don't, you know, I guess um, if I have to answer that question, I guess, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think it, it's, I'm, I feel privileged that I was able to be there like on the front lines of Afghanistan and Iraq. That's, those are both sort of, um, it means a lot to me that I was there because I feel like it was in a very important time in history and journalists provided a very important role for the public in the sense that, um, you know, at the beginning of the insurgency in Iraq, when things started to go wrong in Iraq, it was really the fact that journalists were there to document all those things. I think it was very, very important, especially for the American public to understand what happened there. Can you kind of freeze a frame and tell us something that you're really pleased that you captured that moment. Um, that moment. So I guess I did a two-month embed in the Korongal Valley with the 173rd Airborne. And um, they were, the, the commanders were ambivalent to allow women to go in and do that embed because they weren't sure that we could physically keep up. And we were lucky because the command... Um, Colonel Aslan, who was the commander in charge there, had um, a philosophy of transparency and of letting journalists in, and he allowed me and Elizabeth Rubin in. And we ended up staying two months living on the side of the mountain in the Korngal. And at the end, uh, there was an, a battalion-wide operation called Operation Rock Avalanche. And um, it was pretty incredible. We were airlifted onto the side of a mountain, jumped out of Blackhawks, and walked for basically a week with everything on our backs. And at the end, we were ambushed by the Taliban. And it's a series of photos that, to me, I feel like for, the, for one of the first and only times in my almost 20 years covering war that I was really at the heart of war. And I think it was because we invested so much time to get to know the troops and we really were 
out there with them as naked as they were in terms of the battlefield. And I think it, it meant a lot to me and it means a lot to me. Weren't you afraid you were going to die? Yeah, I'm often afraid I'm going to die. I think um, there have been several times in my life where I was pretty sure I was dead. Um, that was one of them. And then why do you keep going back? I keep going back because I feel a responsibility. I think that there aren't, you know, once once one has the tools to cover war, it's a very unique set of tools. Not that many people know how to cover war and stay alive and cover it in a way that's fair, um, in a way that, that lets people tell their stories without inserting themselves into the story. And I think um, I think it's important to keep doing it. What's What's in the toolkit? What's the best toolkit to go to war with? I mean, literally? Yeah. Um, great boots, hiking boots, headlamp, uh, car inverter, uh, extra batteries, satellite phone, satellite dish, my cameras, helmet, flak jacket, protein bars, running shoes, jogging bra. <laughs> and how about the attitude? What do you need to, what's, what's going on in your head that you need to bring? You have to be ready for everything and anything. And sleeping on the floor, sleeping on the side of the mountain, being cold, um, being hungry, not having coffee. I mean, I remember one, one morning on that particular um, bed, we had been two, three days on the side of the mountain, and I had such a bad headache, and I couldn't figure out why, and we couldn't make a fire because the Taliban was very close. And so I kept taking ibuprofen, and nothing was working, and finally I opened the MRE, and there was a pack of Maxwell House, just the grounds, and I just dumped the whole pack into my mouth, and the headache was gone in like 15 minutes, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> but I mean, you just have to be ready for anything. How many pounds do you carry at times? Your equipment, your cameras alone are heavy. Yeah, my cameras are probably 35 pounds. Uh, the flak jacket, I don't know how much it is, maybe 10 pounds. Uh, helmet, then my kit. Like on a mission like that, I, I stripped everything down. So I had two camera bodies because in case one breaks, that's the other thing, is that you're jumping and diving and falling, and so you have to sort of have backup gear. Um, a lot of batteries. We couldn't charge anything, so I just brought a lot of batteries, and I think I had three lenses. Um, I mean, the whole kit probably was 70, 60 pounds maybe, 70. You're petite. You're five foot one. I'm five one. And yeah. you're often working with this in a man's world, what do people say to you? They must think, I mean, who is this woman? <laughs> no, most people just sort of underestimate me. They sort of look at me and they're like, oh, no, like a girl's with us, you know? But I think it's, um, I'm always having to prove myself. I don't really say anything because I feel like it's show, don't tell, you know? And I never wanted to be the woman who needed help. So I always made sure I, would tra I trained a lot and worked out all the time. Lindsay Adario's physical strength is second only to her mental and emotional strength. And you don't have to look any further than her 2011 ordeal for proof of that. Mary Jordan asked Adario to recount the story of how she was kidnapped that day with three of her New York Times colleagues. I should mention, that was actually her second time being kidnapped. This time, she was in Libya. The way it worked was the front line, Gaddafi's troops and um, his military were pushing in from the west, and the journalists and the rebels were pushing from the east. And the front line was basically a kilometer and a half or maybe a mile in between the two. So um, all the journalists, who, including myself, who were coming covering the rebels, entered uh, Libya illegally without visas. That was the only way to get in and cover the rebels. So that was an issue, obviously, because aside from being shot at or mortared, or um, the, the real danger was running into Gaddafi's troops because none of us had visas. And Gaddafi, um, he kept saying repeatedly that all journalists are spies, and if you see a journalist, you should kill them. So his military was trained to basically kill journalists. So when we were covering the front line, um, I was there for about two weeks um, and basically covering it as cities fell and pushing forward with the rebels. 
And on this particular day, it was March 15th, 2011, I was working with Tyler Hicks, Anthony Shadid, and Steve Farrell. And we were in two vehicles. And that is a preventative mechanism in case something goes wrong, we have a backup vehicle. So Anthony and Steve were in one car and Tyler and I were in another. And the front line was pushing in very quickly. And we knew the city would fall. I mean, as a war correspondent, you learn these signs. Uh, mortar rounds were literally walking onto our position, the position we were with, with the rebels. And civilians were fleeing. It was the first time that we actually saw women and children out of their houses, and they were leaving en masse. Um, and there were leaflets falling, warning people to leave. And so um, at that point, we were covering the fighting on the front line, and we pulled back into the city just to sort of regroup. And when we pulled back, Anthony and Steve's driver stopped the car and dumped all of their stuff on the sidewalk and said, uh, my brother was just shot, I quit. So now we are four journalists and Muhammad, our driver, in one small car. And so we filled the car with all of our staff. And the other danger, of course, is that you have four journalists and four people who have very different needs. So everyone sort of wants to do something different and the front line's coming closer and closer. So at that point, we went back to the hospital and checked civilian casualties and did some reporting there. And more and more people were filing out of the city. And I remember I saw a group of uh, French reporters and photographers. Uh, Laurent van der Stock, who's a photographer who's been shot I don't know how many times. And he looked at me and said, it's time to go, I'm leaving. And at that point I said, oh no, if you're leaving, we're definitely dead because you never let a French reporter leave before you. That's just sort of the joke. So he leaves. And we all get back in the car, and there was a decision made to go back to the front line. And I was very uncomfortable at this point because I felt like it was time to go. Um, but I guess as the only woman in the car, I also felt like maybe I'm just being scared and maybe my instincts are off because for whatever reason that day, I, was, I had a really bad premonition. So we went back to the front line. Everyone jumped out of the car. And uh, I was trying to shoot, but I was kind of paralyzed by fear. And at that point, Mohammed, our driver, got a call saying Gaddafi's troops had entered the city. And we started hearing sniper fire. And so once you hear sniper fire, you know they're in the city because it's, it's, um, they're not that far. So we stayed, continued working, and um, our driver started saying it's really time to go. He was sort of screaming. And then finally we got back in the car after I think he had gotten two phone calls at this point from his brother saying, where are you? You have to leave. His brother was working for the BBC. And so we finally got in the car and we started to pull back. And as we were heading back toward Benghazi, um, I saw soldiers on the horizon and, and they were wearing uniforms. So it was different from the rebels. And it didn't make sense because of course, Qaddafi's troops were coming from, from the West and we were heading east. And so I said, you guys, I think those are Gaddafi's guys. And they started laughing and they were like, no, there's no way they're behind us. And suddenly as we got closer and closer, it was clear that it was Gaddafi's guys and they had flanked the desert. So they went all the way around the desert and cut the road in front of us. And so everyone started screaming something different. Tyler was screaming, don't stop. Uh, Anthony and Steve, everyone was just screaming. And Mohammed stopped the car at the checkpoint and jumped out and said, Sahafa, we're journalists. And at that point, it was complete mayhem. The rebels that we had been covering started opening fire on the checkpoint, and we were literally in a wall of bullets. Uh, Mohammed, I never saw him again. He jumped out the left. I was sitting on the left-hand side behind him. Tyler, Anthony, and Steve jumped out the right, and as soon as they got out of the car, one of Qaddafi's troops was on each of them, sort of pulling at them. And um, because there were bullets everywhere, I was sitting in the car, and as the only woman, this happened to me in Iraq too, I sort of always get left. Like, <laughs> they're like, do we kidnap her? Do we leave her? What is she? Who is she? So they sort of just left me. So I'm sitting in the car thinking, I have to get out of the car because it's not armored. And I knew that the bullets were coming from behind me. So I made a decision to crawl across the back seat and jump out the same side as my colleagues. And when I got out, one of Qaddafi's guys was on me pulling at my cameras. And I was instinctively just pulling back, sort of fighting with him in the middle of the crossfire. And then finally I said, okay, I have to, obviously this is ridiculous. So I let go of my cameras. 
I let go of one camera and the other camera I still had because I remember I was trying to pull the discs out as I was making a run for it. And I remember I pulled them out and I, I don't remember if I ever was able to put them. I usually put them in my bra. And I, but I remember pulling them out as I was running and Anthony tripped and fell in front of me. And I remember looking at him and he was screaming for his life. And I thought, okay, this is as bad as I think it is. It's not, I'm not just overreacting. And so we all made it behind the cement building. And when we got behind the cement building, uh, I mean, adrenaline was going, uh, all Qaddafi's guys were sort of surging with adrenaline and very angry and, and sort of brutal. And they all started asking for our passports and so we handed over our passport. Now I um, had two passports on me because I always have two passports as a journalist, but for whatever reason, I think that day, because in a war zone we travel with everything in case you can't get back to a city, I had both passports. And so I had one in my underwear and one in my waist pack. So when they asked for my passport, I handed one over. And then they told us to lie face down in the dirt. And uh, each one of us had a barrel of a gun put to our heads. It was, uh, I think they were AKs because they were long barrels. And we were sort of looking up and I remember looking over and we were all begging for our lives. They were about to execute us. And um, they had taken my shoes off, my, I had Nike sneakers on, and tied my ankles together and my wrists behind my back. And at that point, the commander came over and said um, in Arabic, which Anthony later translated, um, you can't shoot them, they're American. And so they didn't shoot us. And instead, they continued tying us up. And they emptied all of our pockets and found my discs and never found my, um, I had $8,000 in cash and an extra passport in my underwear that I had for six days. They never found it. And so then they placed me and Steve in vehicles, uh, in one vehicle, and Anthony and Tyler in another, in the middle of the front line, and kept us there tied up for like four or five hours, and basically just laughed at us while bullets and bombs and everything rained around us, and we couldn't do anything. We were just sitting there, basically waiting to die. What was going on in your head at that point? What am I doing here? Why do I care about Libya? I can't believe I'm going to die in a place like Ajdabia. What's my grandmother going to think when she finds out that I died in Libya? Will I see my cameras? What were my last frames? I hope they were good. Will they make it? Like, you know, it's not a linear, what will my husband think? My, you know, my parents. And, and then it's this guilt, you know. It's, you know, that you're putting your family through extraordinary trauma if you even live. And if you don't live, it's the same. And then one of Qaddafi's troops came over, um, actually before Steve got in the car with me, one of Qaddafi's guys came over and sat down next to me. And uh, I thought he was gonna bring me water because often in the Middle East when they see a woman, they sort of bring you water. And he just clocked me square in the face. Like really, and I remember seeing stars and thinking, oh, it's like the cartoon. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was the first time, of course, that I'd been punched in the face. Like, as a woman, I've never been punched. And I thought, okay, now I know where the cartoons come from. <laughs> and then they moved us from the front line, threw us in the back of tanks. Um, and that's where groping really started. Um, we were in the back like sardines of a tank. And I had a guy behind me spooning me. Uh, we were all kind of... Um, lined up like this and the guy behind me was very aggressively touching me and Anthony, Steve uh, and Tyler were all getting beaten. Steve was having a gun sort of shoved between his legs um, and we didn't, we were all too scared to talk so we just said, um, Steve had a sort of tactic where he said, is everyone here? And we all just said yes to make sure that we were still together because we were blindfolded. And then So you could hear them getting beaten. We were all together. We can hear each other grunting and moaning and crying. What did you think the chances were that you were going to get out alive? Oh, I never thought, until, not until we crossed into Tunisia. Because even five days into captivity, I mean, then we were put in prison, in CERT, then we were tied to the sides of a military aircraft and flown to Tripoli and beaten. I mean, we were beaten on the tarmac. We were, you know, I, I, I think I was groped by pretty much every man in Libya. And by the time we got to this VIP prison uh, in Tripoli, we still didn't know where we were, but we assumed as much. Um, 
the foreign ministry took us over and there was a guy who spoke perfect English who sort of said, okay, now you're with the government of Libya and we won't hurt you anymore and whatever. But of course, we were put in a, a like an apartment with bars on the bars on the windows and they said, if you look out the window, we'll kill you. And they brought us food and water, but on the, I think, fifth day, the no-fly zone was obviously implemented because we started hearing French jets. And at that point, we thought, okay, they're definitely going to kill us now because there's no reason not to kill us. At one point, you saw yourself on TV. Yeah, that was really... Um, so right after we were brought to Tripoli, um, we were put in this apartment, and there was um, like a foyer, and there was a TV in there. And so we were all on the couch, and Anthony, I think, was sitting on a chair, and there were all the officials, and everyone's attention was on us. And Anthony very wisely took a remote control and turned the TV on, and he put he found CNN. And there was, the four of our, our pictures were on the screen. And it said something like, the Libyan government cannot ascertain the whereabouts of these four journalists, or something to that effect. And I, I looked at the screen, and I started crying, like I just burst into tears because I realized they were denying that they had us. So of course everyone thought we were dead. So I said, I started crying and I said, you know, don't you have families? Like, just let us call our families. You can keep us as long as you want, but at least let us make a phone call. And they were like, Madam, stop crying. Madam, please stop crying. It's okay, we can't let you make a phone call. And I was like, you know, we have families. And so then, they put us in the other section of the apartment and in rooms. And when we came back, like an hour later, there was just a wire dangling where the TV was. So of course they, they cut us off. And But then that night we were woken up at like two in the morning and they said, okay, you each get one phone call. And I couldn't remember my husband's phone number. And of course my mother never can find her phone in her purse. And my dad doesn't answer the phone. So I thought, who am I going to call? So I was nominated to call the New York Times. <laughs> so that was... You couldn't remember your husband's phone number? No, I mean, I, everything is on my phone. And of course, everything was stolen from us. We lost everything. I mean, What did you say when you got the New York Times on the line? It was Susan Chira. And um, I know Susan, and, I, and she was like, Lindsay! And I was like, Susan! And there was a guy, I mean, I was tied up and blindfolded. And they made the call and put the phone to my ear, and there was a guy literally, like, breathing on me to say, like, don't you dare say anything. And she, and I said, Susan, first of all, can you tell my husband I love him? I said, I forgot his phone number. And I said, we're fine. Um, and she was like, I think that's basically, apparently they had gotten a warning that we would call. And I just said, like, we're okay, we're alive. Yeah, that's it. I didn't want to say, I was scared to say anything. I mean, the thing about being captured is that you're terrified to say anything or do anything and so you it you know there was a lot of psychological trauma that went into it a lot of um, psychological torture really I mean they threatened us with execution over and over and the second you know they would do things like be start to be very nice to us and then beat us again or do something like you know tonight you will die or but say it while they're sort of touching my face in a very tender way. So really twisted sort of ways of manipulating your mind so you're just terrified all the time. And does that affect your work, that incredible, I mean, the torture, the, the yeah. fear? Yeah, I mean, look, I've read, I'm, you know, I read a lot of stories about people's kidnapping and torture, and in my opinion, we got off very easy. I mean, it was not, uh, you know... I, I was fine. We were very lucky to be alive. Muhammad, our driver, was killed. Um, so, I mean, it affects my work in the sense that, you know, now I've been kidnapped twice. So now I've sort of, I, when I'm working in a place like Iraq, even if it's northern Iraq, and, and, you know, sort of someone who hasn't survived those two things would just drive along these roads and say, like, oh, this is great. But of course, for me, all I see is ISIS around every corner, or I see, you know, I envision the road filling up with insurgents because I've seen that and I've been in that situation. So it affects my work in that sense that I'm more paranoid than I ever was, certainly than I was in my 20s. <laughs> I've definitely used up my nine lives. There was a time when war photographers, you know, could be, it was just safer to be a war photographer. Yeah. You were walled off, 
You know, there yeah. weren't drones dropping yeah. you know, from the sky. Um, is it more dangerous now? Is it ever more dangerous? Yeah, I don't think it's, I, I, I don't think it's um, the danger comes from being out there, the fact that we're, we're not sort of cordoned off. I think it's that journalists are targets in a way that we were never before. Um, we are, there are um, regimes who don't want freedom of press. They don't want journalists telling, uh, revealing what's happening inside their country, showing that there are huge human rights abuses going on, that people are killing their own people. Um, and so I think that um, there's a real, and they've seen that when they kill journalists or when journalists are killed, no one does anything ultimately. Everyone mourns and says it's a crime, but there's no, it, it's not a, a UN resolution to kill a journalist. You know, it's, we, we recently fought to get it a UN resolution, to get it made a, into a UN resolution, but ultimately no one's ever held accountable if you kill a journalist. So I think it's just easier to literally shoot the messenger because then you can continue doing whatever you're doing. Um, I think in terms of ISIS and in a lot of the countries, Al-Qaeda, a lot of the fundamentalist groups, they've learned that they can make a lot of money by killing journal by kidnapping journalists. So there's a bounty, you know, they, they get ransom. And so it's a huge financial gain to kidnap a journalist. And there are a lot of governments who pay. It's a business. such brutality, such sadness. Um, you know, you've seen roomfuls of corpses, shards of skulls. Do those images that you've captured stay in your head? Not, you know, the, the really gruesome ones don't stay in my head as much as uh, the stories, like the personal stories, surprisingly. Um, I don't have nightmares. I mean, usually by the time I go to sleep, I'm so tired, I don't remember anything. But I, but it's more, um, it's certain moments that stay in my head. Um, and they're not necessarily the really gruesome ones. It's more like I remember um, a woman bleeding to death in front of me because she had just given birth and she hemorrhaged and there was no doctor. And just watching her literally bleed to death and I couldn't do anything. I mean, those are the moments that sort of plague me. The photos that Lindsay Adario took that day in 2010 in Sierra Leone are heart-wrenching. Again, you can look at them on her website, lindsayadario.com. In a series of just 19 photographs, you witness the delivery of a baby who is not breathing, that baby being revived, while the mother, already clearly in distress, becomes unresponsive, dies, is carried back home to her village and is buried by her grieving family. I had won a MacArthur Fellowship and wanted to focus on maternal mortality and why women die in childbirth. And at that point, about 500,000 women were dying every year in childbirth around the world. And so I went to Sierra Leone because it was a country with a very high maternal death rate. And the first hospital I went to in the provinces, um, it was the Magbaraka Government Hospital. I went in and I met this woman, Mama Sise, and uh, she had been pregnant with twins and delivered the first baby in the village, and the second baby wouldn't come out. And so she had to take a canoe across a river and an ambulance for six hours across bumpy roads. And I know the roads because I then took them back with her corpse. And um, when she got to the hospital, that's when I met her, and she was fine, totally coherent and in pain and tired, and, and, um, and we talked at length about her life. She was studying, and her dad pulled her out of school to get pregnant, and she finally delivered the second baby and started hemorrhaging. And she, as she was bleeding, I kept saying to the midwives, I think she's bleeding too much and I'm shooting. And I did a video of it as well. So you can hear my voice in the video saying she's bleeding. And uh, there was one doctor in the entire province and he was in surgery. So I, I, at some point I got very uncomfortable and I left and I went into the surgical ward 
put on scrubs, went into surgery, and said to the doctor, I think there's a woman dying. And he looked at me like, well, great, I'm in surgery. And I went back to Mama Cisse and encouraged the midwives to carry her to the doctor. And they literally brought her. Um, she was barely conscious at this point. And by the time the doctor came out of surgery, she died. So then I followed her mother and sister back to the village with her, and that picture is the funeral. What kind of effect do you think your photos on that incredibly important story about mortality? Well, that is one of the very, very few times in my life where there actually was like a, a tangible effect that I know about. And when that um, Time magazine, I was very lucky because Time magazine published an eight-page story on Mama Cisse. And it's hard. Maternal health is a very hard sell. I mean, most people don't want to publish stories on, on maternal mortality um, because most people don't realize that 800 women die every day in childbirth, and that's extraordinary. And so there was a doctor, um, Dr. Naveen Rao, and he works at Merck, the pharmaceutical company. And when that story came out, he happened to see it. And he, ha he went online and watched the video of Mama Cisse dying. And he was so moved by the story that he just started showing the pictures to the board members at Merck, quietly, not, didn't like call a meeting. And, and they were so upset that they set aside a half a billion dollars to fight maternal death based on that story. Did you work while you were pregnant? I did. I worked a lot. I worked until I was 28 weeks. I was in um, Senegal, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Kenya, Somalia, and Gaza. No morning sickness? <laughs> I did. The first three months I was really, really exhausted and um, sick, but I was so terrified uh, about being pregnant because I thought, what will happen to my life and how will I continue to do this job that I sort of forced myself to go out there. Did people react any differently? They see this American pregnant war photographer. So I, um, I didn't really gain any weight until I was like six five, six months. And luckily, a lot of the places I work, I wore an abaya. And very sort of, you know, when I'm working, I dress. I work mostly in Muslim countries, so I'm dressed apart. Um, so no one knew until I remember I was on a road trip with uh, Joe Klein. I'd come back to the U.S. and I was doing a story for Time magazine. It was sort of a pre-election story and we were driving across America and it was between my fifth and sixth month and suddenly my stomach sort of popped in the middle of that trip and I hadn't told him I was pregnant. And I, I remember suddenly making a decision like, I think I have to tell him because he's going to think I'm like binge eating or something. You know? So I went downstairs and I was like, Joe, good morning. And he's like, you know, he doesn't look up and he's like, do you want breakfast? And I'm like, I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm almost six months pregnant. And he's like, what is your problem? <laughs> but, it, you know, in my head, there were a host of problems. I mean, I, I didn't know a single female photographer who had been pregnant, who had had a child. So I was really scared, you know, and I didn't want to tell anyone. I didn't want to tell my editors because I didn't want them to make decisions on my behalf about how long I should work. Um, you know, it was a decision I wanted to make with my husband, and we did that together. And how did it change your work to have a baby? Um, how did it change? Look, I think by the time I decided to have a baby, I had been kidnapped twice, was in a car accident, two of my drivers were killed, my two friends were killed in Libya, Tim Hetherington and Chris Andros. Joao Silva had lost his legs. Um, you know, there were a lot happened in very quick succession, and I think... I naturally felt like I needed to pull back, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I decided to get pregnant then, because I was 37 and I had Lucas at 38. So um, I have not been covering um, combat recently. I haven't covered combat in a few years. So I've been in South Sudan and been under fire, but I'm not like it's a very different time also in history. I mean, a lot of the reasons why I was going into those war zones was because American troops were there and on the front line, and I felt like it was very important for the American audience to see what was happening. So it's not, for me, in my head, there were very specific reasons why I was going to certain places. So it's not, um, I'm not sort of just a war junkie. I don't just go wherever there's combat. How has photography changed 
since you started shooting? I mean, I guess photography has changed because there's a real proliferation of photography. I mean, I, in 2017, more than one trillion photographs will be taken by people on their smartphones and with real cameras. And so we're so inundated by images. And I think that's the difference from when I first started because we didn't have digital cell phones. I started in 1980, really, in the 80s, um, and professionally in the early 90s. And so I think I'm competing with many more images. My, my readers and my viewers, the viewers of my photographs, are bombarded by images, so when they look at my picture, it really has to stand out, um, and it has to rise above the rest. So it's harder. And do you think it will change again? I mean, as you look out in the future, how do you think? Well, I mean, look at virtual reality. I mean, that's probably the biggest development um, that we've seen in some time. I mean, video has become more ubiquitous, but also virtual reality and the fact that you can literally walk into a three-dimensional scene that I think for a still photographer is a bit jarring because how do you compete with something like that? But I do believe in the still image. I believe that there's still certain photos that hold the world accountable to certain issues. Was there a moment in your career that you described kind of a turning point? Or, you know, I've heard people say, you know, once that happened, there was no turning back. I knew this is what I was going to do. I mean, I think that happened day one. <laughs> Which I, I was lucky because I, I, you know, I look at, I meet so many young men and women at universities or when I'm giving talks and they say like, you know, I don't know what to do, should I be a photographer? And, you know, I never had that question. I knew from the minute I started photographing for newspapers and for the Associated Press that that's all I wanted to do. Lindsay Adario feels unfulfilled, even guilty, she says, if a week goes by without her using her camera. It's just, as the title of her memoir suggests, what she does. These days, Adario says she spends a lot more of her time documenting humanitarian crises and the lives of refugees. She's gone to Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, all to photograph people who fled the war in Syria. And okay, she has gone into Syria, but she says she's not consistently covering war anymore the way she once did. And yes, her family sleeps a little better at night. I'm Alice Winkler, and just a little public service announcement before we close. Memorize your loved one's phone numbers. This is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is generously funded by the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening. See you in two weeks. And meanwhile, go check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place else in the audio sphere.